Let's travel back to the past. Back in time. Back in time. Do we have to go 88? I mean, we can go as fast or as slow as we want. <laughs> time is a construct <laughs> that we can do with it whatever we want. <laughs> I mean, that's what I learned from, like, Zero Escape, so. There you go. Ice Nine. Uh-huh. Uh, hello. Welcome. This is your favorite podcast about time. <laughs> Not the magazine. The concept. <laughs> this is the seasonal anime checkup OVA. Hello, it's a podcast where we have conversations about video games, anime, and manga. I'm Jared, joined by the presenter herself and Ladyum. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> that's me. And we're gonna do something a little bit different this week. It's still video games. It's still it is still video games. We're gonna take a look at the early early history of the video game industry. Mostly because you have spent quite a bit of time with this subject. Since uh well, I, w- I started it on my master's thesis and then this actual project that I've been working on I started in spring twenty sixteen. So that's two whole years. <laughs> You're keeping track at home. Yeah, so it's a, uh, it's been a lot, and we previously talked about some of it when we talked about the uh, the X-rated video games of Atari. It's true. Yep. And um, so that was like a little tiny sliver of chunk. I think it equates to like maybe ten pages. <laughs> But uh fascinating subject, but not necessarily the the breadth of your entire project. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's one of my favorite things that came out of this research, just because it's so freaking bizarre. But um, but yeah, not not the main focus. But we did do a podcast on some of my research before, so um, now we get more. That's true. Did you tell them what episode number it is yet? Because I have to I have to explain significance of that. <laughs> I don't think I did. Hold on. This is episode number seventy two, if you were if you had not uh, paid attention to the title or anything else. <laughs> <laughs> and I got excited when I found out it was seventy two. because um, I was like, Oh man, that fits because that's the year that Atari was founded and also the year that Pong came out. So um it's really We totally planned this. Super duper planned it. <laughs> we were like, okay, we're gonna. This is how we're gonna do our episodes. We're gonna like, we're gonna do two just randomly, and then like the start of January in 2017, we're just gonna go full weekly. And then by the time we get to the end of April of 2018, it'll be lined up to where Al has to do her dissertation defense, and it'll just be perfect. <laughs> yes. So I guess for background information, if you haven't listened before to any of the like research based ones or anything or like my random ramblings, um, (laughs) I am currently getting my Ph.D. in history with a focus on video game history, which let me tell you, that was an experience trying to get that um, approved because historians tend to be very traditional. And, like, the number one thing I get asked is, like, why video game history? Like, that's not history. I was alive during that time. And, like, my response is always, you were alive during the Vietnam War, too, and nobody's asking if you can write history on that. (laughs) It's true. 
I, you're not wrong. <laughs> I just love the, so, the snark. <laughs> I'm, I'm really bad about snark. It's it's a, it's a great trait. Mm, it can be. So, um, my dissertation defense is this week, and by the time this comes out, we will know one way or the other how that goes. Yeah. So fingers crossed that it goes well, but. We figured that this would be a prime opportunity while everything is fresh in my brain to go through and talk about this period of time because people are aware of it, especially like in the in the gaming world, but they don't really understand how important this period was to actual like the gaming future. And I think like people have a basic understanding of things that happened during this time period, but like there's a lot more details and things that were happening like just around the goings-ons of certain companies that isn't necessarily fully explored a lot of the times. Yeah, and I mean, even before I decided to do this as my life, essentially, um, I've been playing games since I was like a tiny, tiny munchkin. Like, my entire family jokes that I was playing video games before I could talk. And I, I don't think that they're wrong, honestly. They're probably very, very right on that. But I wasn't really aware of a lot of the stuff that happened before the NES era. Because you weren't alive. And I wasn't alive, <laughs> but I wasn't alive when the NES came out either. Right. So um, just a lot of it was missed, and a lot of it is not really talked about that much. Uh, I kind of understand why now that I've done this research why it's not talked about as much uh, because it, it's not really like the most positive beginnings no 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 but um, I think it's important to talk about and especially for like people like us who actually really like video games don't consider themselves capital G gamers and, like, care about, like, things like, you know, the history of the industry and, like, where things have come and how to relate, you know, like, things that happened in the past to what's happening in today, the today's, like, world, essentially. Right. So, um, other background information. Jared is the only one up to this point th that has actually read through the whole thing. <laughs> Like the most up-to-date modern version of this dissertation. You are the only one besides me who has actually read... The like five different updated versions that was Yeah, sent. Yeah, so, um, so congratulations to you on that. Um, my, my committee will join you this week, hopefully. They might read it, I don't know. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's questionable. Yeah, so um, I think... Honestly, you are the best person to to talk to about this because <laughs> if anybody knows what's going on, it's you because you've yeah. read it. That's true. So, I don't exactly know where to start other than... Um, well, you start thing, at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking, just start at the beginning because one thing that I really emphasize in this dissertation is that like video games don't come from nowhere. Um, and also I think another like just to like piggyback off of that like mm -hmm. another common misconception of video games is they don't just come from Pong yeah Atari is not the beginning um, despite what Nolan Bushnell will continue to say 
Atari and Pong's not the beginning. There's actually a lot more to it. Um, and it actually started in 58, which whenever I tell people video games really started in 58, they're like, what? <laughs> um, and it's in like a military lab because they were doing an open house and, um, his name is William Higginbotham. People always called him Willie. And this guy is fascinating because one, he worked on the Manhattan Project and two, he worked on radar. <laughs> and so like, he's really important to actual like military tech of the 20th century. But then he's also the actual first man to create a video game. Not, not the type of place you figure like the, the genesis of video games would come from. <laughs> No, and it's so adorable. Like I was reading interviews with this man, and people asked him because he created. Uh, it's called Tennis for Two, and he created it in his lab out of spare parts uh, in order to entertain young boys on an open house. He was later found and was asked, like, you know, why didn't you look into this? And he was saying, you know, you really didn't want me to because if I had tried to patent that, you realize the government would have owned video games, right? That's a, that was like one of the, that's one of the first like real fascinating quotes of, of your disc where it's like, <laughs> where you get to that, it's like, oh, wow, yeah. That would, to try and even fathom like how the industry would be if that had occurred is just like mind boggling. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about because, I mean, literally, the government would have owned all rights to video games. And that's crazy. Mm -hmm. But he's like, yeah, you, you didn't want that, so I didn't do it. But also, he, he thought of it as just like a temporary amusement. Uh, he didn't really think of it having a long-term placement. And honestly, he said later that he needed the parts for other stuff. So and, he just and, dis dismantled it. And he made it off like, or he made it using like an oscilloscope, right? Yeah, he did. He used a, an oscilloscope and he read the manual trying to figure out like how to um, describe like the gravity or uh, to put the gravity into the system mm. of Earth using a ball. And I think the funniest thing is that he also figured out how the gravity would work on Jupiter so that yeah. you could play tennis on Jupiter. But like even just like going off of that, like, even if he wanted to, like, just try and, I guess, capitalize off of this, you know, not many people own oscilloscopes. <laughs> no. Um, and that happens again later with the, the PDP-1. Yeah, it's, it's not really, at that time, computers weren't accessible. Right. And so it wouldn't have even made sense for him to think of it as, like, a commercial thing. It was just him honestly goofing around yeah um people didn't know about him until the 80s though like somebody uncovered it because there was a kid who went and played the game and by the time he was an adult in the 80s and he's like yeah um i played a video game like back in 58 <laughs> and you know i i don't know if anybody knew this and people didn't so then you had like journalist i think the the journalist who went to it uh maybe it was computer gaming and or video gaming and computer gaming illustrated i think was the the one who went and so they sent a journalist to go talk to him he's like oh hey yeah i did that that's, <laughs> that's a thing and they're like oh my god we've uncovered the father of video gaming he's just chill about it like oh yeah, yeah i guess i did that thing yeah 
Yeah, that, it's so weird, like reading interviews with him because he seems like the most chill guy, and knowing well, that he like worked on all these things is crazy. yeah. I bet like just for him knowing like oh I I worked on the Manhattan Project, I worked on Radar, and these people want to come talk to me about this weird, just tiny thing I made in '58 just for the fun. Of yeah. It. And- okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um. Also a fun fact and aside a little bit, he was also very, very anti-atomic weaponry mm-hmm. because after working on the Manhattan Project and seeing what they did with it, he's like, no, this is not okay. So he was like, for the rest of his life, he was very, very anti-nuclear weaponry. I'm like, you know what? Good on you, man. Like he, he was instrumental in the process because he basically, um, like the pin for it, I don't remember what they're called when it comes to nuclear weaponry, but um, basically the the switch that made it implode, um, he made that. <laughs> so he kind of felt responsible. Yeah. But you had a little bit of a gap between what he did and then the next game, which again was not commercial. This one is more of like the the roots of what you would consider gaming because this was a bunch of nerds at MIT who were really into sci-fi and decided they were going to make a video game that was playing out a battle in their favorite sci-fi novel. They wanted to create, yeah, they wanted to just basically make a way to live out like all those like sci-fi novels they read. Mm-hmm. Which that sounds way more like the origins. Yeah, of video yeah, games. exactly. <laughs> like a bunch of nerds at MIT, of course. There's, I think three of them, but um, two of them were only minor in the process. William Grates was the the major, major programmer for it. It took him a little over a year to to get it working. So 62 is around the, the time period where, where this was a working game. And it was called uh, Space War! Exclamation point. Space War! Space War! And um, this was the one on the PDP-1. Again, not an accessible computer because they were students at MIT who were supposed to be essentially programming for the government. And computers still in the 60s, not accessible to the general public in like yeah. a, a good way. Honestly, the game itself isn't necessarily like important. It doesn't do a lot of things that are like... I don't want to say innovative because it's one of the first video games. But it's not really anything that's like impressive to look at. But given the time period and what they were working with, I think that's pretty awesome what they did. Especially just because that's, like you said, it's more of the the genesis of what we consider, you know, the modern video game, essentially. Or at least, like, what the early, early arcade games would become. Yeah, because essentially, um, like, a, a lot of people had played this, which I'll get to in a second, but... It's similar in gameplay to Asteroids that came mm-hmm. later, like a lot later. And honestly, it did it better than Asteroids. <laughs> so, um, whoops. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was the Lensman novels that they were trying to to play out on the, the space battles. So it was a, a pretty big deal, but they never really took it anywhere. But what was important about this is that the code for the game kept getting transferred to other like computer science departments around the country mm-hmm. and edited and upgraded and that kind of thing. 
And um, there's actually a tournament in 1972 that Rolling Stones, like Rolling Stone magazine, um, covered. I had a bunch of pictures of like all these long-haired guys that were like playing. Uh, they were playing Space War, and there was like a giant like award package that they won. So was so, it? I mean, it, so it, was it, it basically them? Just playing the game, or were they trying to make their own versions of the game? No, it was um, competitive. Huh. So, um, in ten years, it became like a competitive gaming scene, which is fascinating that that was already happening. Yeah. But it was all again like computer science guys who, uh, at that point, it, they were called like engineers. But just the fact that Rolling Stone magazine decided, like, hey, we're gonna go cover this tournament and give them like an entire year subscription to Rolling Stone if they win, and it's crazy. Because, because you know, like we said, like video games weren't a thing yet. No, we're getting there, but not yet. Um, because '72 is when things start really really rolling but even by the time rolling uh, um, by the time that Rolling Stone did this Pong wasn't even out yet right so I mean it, it was pretty cool that I mean you already had competitive gaming at that point <laughs> but yeah one of the major people who got access to that code and decided to edit it was um, my favorite <laughs> Nolan Bushnell in Utah I feel like we're gonna we're gonna see a trend of him taking things that other people made and then using them to his advantage. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Um. So that was Nolan's real first experience with video gaming, and he he loved it. He was at this point again in the um, College of Engineering at uh, Utah, and he um, was also working as like a carny essentially so i mean that seems the most fitting it really does <laughs> so um it started planting ideas in his head that we'll come back to later but nolan bushnell could go on the side because my favorite is ralph Bayer. and ralph Bayer starts working is around buyer i always thought it was bear um i've always heard of buyer okay Huh. I, I think it probably could be pronounced either way. It might just be a, an issue with the fact that he's German. Yeah, it's a pronunciation thing. Yeah, so um, whichever one we want to say is fine. Um, which, yeah, that's a thing. He came, like, he fled Nazi Germany because he's Jewish. Mm-hmm. And, like, I did not know that until I started doing this research. And, like, wow, okay, so a lot of modern gaming depended on the fact that he was able to survive Nazi Germany. Yeah. Which, like, contextually is fascinating. Like, when you actually think about that, it's, it's crazy. So Ralph got started in 66, and he was working for Magnavox, which, if you don't know, it was a TV company. And he created what was called the brown box. And it's like the most aesthetic thing in the world because it's <laughs> got like that wood paneling stuff mm -hmm. on it. Oh, yeah, it, it's real. And so Ralph created this while he was working for Magnavox. And it really didn't get to go anywhere until like 71, 72. 
Because, like, he made it, but then they didn't put it out for, like, four or five years, right? Right. And so he made it, and he had, like, patents, and his schematics are actually really cool to look at. Um, I, I love him and hate him at the same time because his handwriting's about as terrible as mine. <laughs> um, but he has just, like, pages and pages of schematics of the brown box. And so what he envisioned was um, to play video games on a TV. He worked for a TV company. Hmm. So that was his idea. And again, it didn't really become anything until the early 70s when um, it became the Magnavox Odyssey. And again, like arcades aren't a thing yet. Arcade games nope. really aren't a thing yet. They but weren't he, at all. But here he's like, I'm going to I'm going to do this thing on a TV, which is mm-hmm. completely groundbreaking. Oh, yeah, it was huge. And, um, I mean, it was primitive because it used, like, screen overlays Yeah. in order to work. But, um, like, one of the coolest things that I think about this is it had a light gun. hmm And then, like, that didn't really happen again until the NES. But it had a home light gun. Yeah. All right. And, like, the NRA loved him for that, which, of course, they did. <laughs> <sighs> but, yeah. um... So you had a bunch of different video games on there, but one in particular was a table tennis game. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> so, because uh, the, the, I think the uh, like the the pack of games that you get with that was like it was a table tennis thing, a couple of other sports games, mm-hmm. some education games. Yep. And then the light gun game, right? I think there was also a haunted house. Yeah, that makes that sounds about right. Yeah, um, because I remember there was a house overlay. Right. So I mean, it wasn't like really extensive, but it was considering that like it was the seventies and all those games came with it. Like that's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of his baby, which is adorable. Like he continuously refers to the, the Magnavox Odyssey as his baby. Um, and he ended up taking it to like a a show so that he could show off what it was. And, um, a little, little sly dog came in and, um, completely ruined himself because he signed the guest book. Like if you're going to steal somebody's idea, don't sign the guest book. Pro you tip. idiot. Pro tip. Uh, so Nolan Bushnell was there and um, decided that he didn't like that game, but he wanted to use it. And that will become relevant later. Mm. Because also at the same time, he's ripping off another game because yep. his first actual commercial, the first arcade game coin operated ever was made by Nolan Bushnell. And it was called Computer Space. And it was hmm. 100% a ripoff of Space War. Like, copy-paste. Yep. Uh, had a, like, sexy-as-heck case, though. Like, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's, it's like... It's weird. It's really rounded. Yeah. And it's, it's got, like, It's very 70s paints. aesthetic. Oh, heck yeah. It's, it's got, like, metallic paints in different colors. I've seen it in red and yellow. It's... I will give him credit. That is a sexy, sexy arcade machine. <laughs> but, yeah. It didn't do well (laughs) 
And um, that started an entire issue with Nolan hating the working class, which is a nightmare. Because um, nope. essentially he was like, oh, the, the smart people really like this game, but like average Joes, they hated it. It was too complicated for them. Rawr, 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 rawr. Yeah, so like this disingenuous blaming of like the working class men for his game failing and not thinking like, hmm, maybe it was like the aesthetics or the control scheme or something like that. He's like, no, I just smart people got it and they didn't. And that kind of rhetoric continued with Nolan for a long, long time. I mean, also, it's not like he could really understand why they would maybe not like the thing because he completely ripped it off of something else and just stole ideas right and left to, to build his <laughs> empire. So, yeah, yeah. Nolan, uh, ugh. that's really all I'd say is Nolan. Ugh. <laughs> but when that didn't work out for him, he decided that he was going to make another game, which was Pong. And Pong was his version of ralph from the brown Bo or brown box magna fox odyssey the table tennis it was a huge huge hit like massive and one of the most famous stories is that when they put it into the tavern for testing they uh, al alcorn who is the man who actually programmed the game and never gets any credit for it ever Shocker. um i know i know um <laughs> They called Al and they're like, hey, man, your machine's broken. We don't know what to do. And so he went in to check on it to see what was wrong. And he opened the cash box and like it was overflowing with quarters and it had just jammed up the actual machinery of the, the arcade machine. So um, that's like the number one story of Pong was Al basically losing his entire mind because there was so much money in the machine. <laughs> but that really started a lot of stuff in motion and for one it atari was founded in 72 because they were originally um synergy and they found out that that was taken and um they eventually went with atari which is um essentially the japanese equivalent of like checkmate mm -hmm. um so i mean it I say Nolan Bushnell's a nerd. He's a different kind of nerd. But um, he sucks. <laughs> but that really started things rolling. Um, because Atari got to be huge at that point. Because everybody was talking about this. And, I mean, he... he credit where credit's due. He did start the coin-operated arcade gaming industry. Mm -hmm. Straight up, he did. Um... But what is also wonderful about this is that um, Magnavox sues Nolan because of his uh, clear taking of Ralph's work. And um, it led to a bunch of like mega sassy remarks from Ralph throughout <laughs> his entire life. And it was A plus beautiful. Um, well deserved. Yeah, because... Magnavox ended up winning because of course they did. They had like his name on the guest book and then Ralph was able to show like, yeah, I've had this stuff set up since 66, man. Like this is all mine. Here are the patents. Like this is done. Um, and so Atari ended up having to pay Magnavox anytime they did anything with Pong. Nolan continuously decided that he was the father of video gaming. And a lot of people would contest that saying like, no, it was actually Ralph. And Ralph was basically like, 
I don't really care. Like, if he wants the title, that's fine because he's been lying to himself for years anyway. <laughs> so, like, let him live in his fantasy land. And I'm like, wow, that is sassy and true. And it's just, like, continuous until he died. He died a few years ago. But, um, like, whenever you're reading anything that he wrote, there's always, like, one little little jab in at Nolan. I'm like, oh, I love him. He's an adorable old man. <laughs> so, yeah. And Atari, there's a giant difference in, like, the kinds of systems that Ralph was working in, the kind of environment that Ralph was working in, and what Nolan builds up. Because Nolan, at this point, is in his 20s, and he's fresh out of college, and he is very into the ideas of like the hippie movement still and uh, I mean he even quotes at one point that he was like in the age of Aquarius which roll eyes um, but he had this whole idea of like liberation in terms of the workplace whereas Ralph was in like he was working for Magnavox in the 60s so he, he had a more traditional business model when it came to his stuff Tradition versus counterculture. Yeah. And so Nolan, when he starts Atari, and um, what they ended up doing is renting out like an old uh, abandoned rolling rink or skating rink and renovating that into the Atari offices. It becomes just like, I don't know, creative chaos in a way. <laughs> because... It's a bunch of guys who are like in their late teens and 20s put into, and yes, it's mostly guys, um, put into this skating rink and add in like the counterculture and drugs and just youth in general and then like youth masculinity at the time. It's chaos. And it is. It's really, really chaotic. Not necessarily a bad thing when it came to actual creativity. Because they continuously put out some really quality video games at the time. And, I mean, like, quality by our standards now are different from quality in the 70s. But for the time, they were being really, really innovative. And yeah, that's I mean, they're, they're, they're iterating on, like, Pong and everything. So, like, everything's going up from there. So, mm-hmm. Which, um, I mean, Nolan wrote a manifesto. Yeah. <laughs> like, if that's not the most, like white dude thing in the world (laughs) i don't know what is but he wrote a manifesto about atari about how um how he wanted it to be like this free and open culture where nobody was discriminated against and um he even mentions like the long hairs versus the short hairs because there was like this tension against like the old business model and um it, it was it was a thing, but it became the situation where, like, there was a lot of drug use in the offices. Mm-hmm. Which there's this joke that um, Warshaw makes that, um, which he, uh, I'm trying to think of all the games that he did. He did ET for one, he did Yars, right? Yeah. And then Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
really famous in Atari um, for different reasons, but they had a, a slogan that was, um, we take fun seriously, which is actually the name of my dissertation. hey Woo! It's like when they dropped the name in the show. Um, but he always joked that their new slogan was, uh, we take fun intravenously because, uh, there was a lot of drug use and it, there was a blind eye turned to this drug use. Basically the issue that Nolan talked about was that he would come in the office and one, he would make sure that nobody was dead from an overdose and two, he would make sure that nobody was in jail. And like when clearly those are, things you want from your, right. your startup company. <laughs> when those are the two things you're having to worry about every day you come to work, that's a problem. But he was also, um, you know, one thing that he did, and this is kind of a weird choice, but anyway, um, he would hire basically anybody on the street um, to actually manufacture the cabinets. And that ended up equating to a lot of drug users and a lot of, like, drug dealers assembling cabinets, which then led to a lot of missing parts for cabinets that could be sold to pawn shops. <laughs> not not his greatest idea. Wasn't he also, at that time, like, when he would try and entice people to come work for him, like, hire women to, like, come to these parties and, like, it would just be, like, full of alcohol and drugs and be like, mm-hmm. oh, if these people, if these these young engineers, these young male engineers come in, like they see girls, and they're gonna, these girls are gonna be interested in them. Man, they're gonna want to work here. It's that was his recruiting ploy for yeah. engineers was that he would legitimately like bring booze and drugs and women and like try and entice young dudes to come work at Atari, and it worked. But like, oh, it's so gross. It's no shocker that there was like no HR department at Atari at the time. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. Um, which there were no departments in general. Yeah, <laughs> that was a problem. Uh, and I mean, you had weird issues like Steve Jobs never wore shoes on the on the production floor for a long time, and they finally told him like, "Hey, man, you got to start wearing shoes because that's a liability." Everyone, um, everyone always credit <laughs> like like thinks of Steve Jobs like this brilliant person and everything for all he did with Apple, but like, man, his everything like he he's talked about with like in terms of atari just makes him sound like just the the strangest weirdo ever yeah i mean like for one he was a jerk because he really really uh screwed over was Mm -hmm. but two like he never wore shoes they said that he smelled terrible like they constantly mention how bad steve jobs smelled and um once he decided that he was gonna go on his like tour of india for enlightenment uh yeah um, Nolan's like, yeah, sure, you can do that. I'll pay you to go fix some, like, Pong machines in Germany, and then you can just get to India from there. <laughs> and so that's how he started his, like, India Enlightenment tour, was fixing Pong machines in Germany. Because that's how that goes. Yeah, I mean, it probably would have been cheaper for him to fly from California to India than it would to go from Germany to India. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever. You also had people like skateboarding in the production area and you had them like flying airplanes and things, not real airplanes, but I mean, there was a whole general sense of like fun and play in this environment. And so one of my like statements that I continuously bring up in the dissertation is that this was like a countercultural, youthful business model 
and that it was very much focused on fun, but that focus on fun was what made the innovation of the games. Mm -hmm. The issue, though, is that there was rampant sexism. Yeah. And a lot of it is kind of built up in like an ironic way and not ironic in like the sense that we would consider ironic. They would consider it ironic because they're in like a post second wave feminism world. And they're like, yeah, we shouldn't say this, but we're going to say it anyway. That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so they know that what they're saying is not good and they shouldn't be doing it, but they do it anyway. I mean, it led to some really bizarre and terrible things like Nolan's hot tub parties are pretty famous. And I'm sure that now everybody's heard about it because of the not Nolan movement um, where he would just like ask secretaries to like get in the hot tub with him after they would bring in paperwork. But there was also stuff like, um, like gotcha. (laughs) Oh, gotcha. Which I think was 74 if I'm not mistaken, but Gotcha was built specifically. The gameplay was kind of secondary. It was like a, a maze catch em game. Um, kind of like Pac-Man, but before Pac-Man. But the controllers were two pink orbs next to each other that you were supposed to move around with your hands in order to control the character. It was not accidental. <laughs> <laughs> there was a comment by one of the developers. He was basically like, We didn't blatantly say that they were boobs, but they were boobs. (laughs) And that game actually was like one of the most like early controversial games because of that control scheme, which is fascinating because like nobody thought the joysticks was an issue. Right. Um, And I I make several references within the dissertation that like joysticks and self-manipulation are a real thing. And by what I mean by that is that there's this entire idea of like you're projecting yourself into the game and by controlling yourself, you are controlling the character and controlling yourself with a joystick is self-manipulation in like masturbatory ways. The very if Freudian that, type of analysis there. Makes any sense, but um, it, this entire gotcha thing threw it off. Because then you're manipulating an other. Mm-hmm. Um, because they thought it was funny in the sense that, like, it's boobs. But then it becomes a question of, like, was it unpopular because of the control scheme? Like, that it was considered, like, taboo? Or was it unpopular because of the control scheme and, like, it was irregular, didn't feel right mentally? So, I mean, it, it's it's a psychological thing. And a little complicated and... I don't know the answer, but eventually they took the orbs out and replaced it with regular joysticks because they got so many complaints about it, which is funny. Um, but you also like got really strange stuff. Like um, there was an Atari football ad, mm-hmm. and this is like one of my favorite things to tell people it was about this Atari football ad because it was made in house. And that's the fascinating thing about a lot of this early advertisement is it was made in-house. And so people thought within the company this was a good idea to represent them. (laughs) And so you have the Atari football cabinet and you have a man and a woman playing it. And um, the man is losing like insanely terrible. Like he's doing awful. But he looks super happy. 
And then you zoom out in the commercial and you realize that she's topless. <sighs> Which has a lot of implications in terms of like, well, is she winning because of her bearing her breasts or is she actually good at the game or, you know, it's, it's gross. The Atari, oh. the Atari implication there probably would be the, the former rather than the latter because Lord knows they probably didn't think women were playing games or at least being good at them at the time. Yeah, no, they, they didn't even consider that. And that's one thing that I talk about is that they continuously say that like their audience is men. Um, whether they're young boys between like 13 and 17 or like the mid-20s range, they're only interested in marketing towards men, period. And you don't have many women working at Atari at this point. And the women that you do have working at Atari are like handling sales and things like that. So they're not like in the creative departments until like a little bit later. But even then, it's it's a complicated situation. So it, it, it is a, a weird situation where you have like this blatantly sexist behavior and this blatantly childish like drug use behavior. But it's leading to a lot of really creative and innovative games. <laughs> so it's kind of like, personally, I condemn it because I'm like, oh, this is a terrible environment. But in terms of like historically act acting, like let me retry that. <laughs> Historical actors, um, it's significant because they're doing a lot of like really great things for the industry. <laughs> so um, like personally, I'm very, very conflicted about this. And um, I had a hard time coming up with even an argument for this dissertation at first because I didn't want to blatantly say that because I was so against like this initial culture of Atari. <laughs> But that's like the first part of this is that there was this really creative countercultural business model that was built up. It had blatant sexism in it, but it was making great games. Yeah. So that that's a thing. Did I miss anything about the the like cultural atmosphere of that? I think the one thing you didn't mention is Bushnell's famous shirt. Mm, how could I forget? <laughs> so, um, as I mentioned earlier, there was no real structure to the company. Warner, which most people know who Warner is, like the company, decided they were going to buy out Atari, and this was like 1976, I think. And so they sent a representative to go check out Atari and see what, what the environment was like, what the people were like, what needed to be done, that kind of thing. And so Ray Kasser is sent in, and he is the representative from Warner. And he shows up in, like, a business suit. He uh, he used to work for, like, a towel company, so he's, you know, all business. He's from that traditional um, model. He is. He's from that traditional model. And so, like, this is the biggest representative of that class right here. Because he shows up to this meeting, and Nolan shows up to the meeting, but Nolan is in jeans and a t-shirt, and the t-shirt just says, I love to f He showed up to a business meeting a in high, a t-shirt. A very high, like, ranking business meeting, like a very one important one. One determines the future of his company. Yeah. And he shows up in a t-shirt that says, I love to f 
And like, can you imagine being a woman in that company and seeing that? You're like, oh my God. But then like even Ray was really uncomfortable. And like, I don't understand why this happened. Like it's, it's almost uh, surprising that Warner even went through with the acquisition after that. I'm very shocked, but there's also no surprise that they got rid of Nolan pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't put this in a dissertation because there is a lot of argument over whether or not it happened, but um, Ray, until he died, contended that also at that same meeting, Nolan offered him a joint. Nolan claims it didn't happen. There's one that I'm more inclined to believe but, um, like I said, I didn't want to put it in there because there's no real proof that it happened. The t-shirt, everybody says, yes, that happened. Mm-hmm. I I wouldn't put it past him to offer this man a joint at a business meeting. Especially just the way the culture of Atari was at the time. It, it was normally would not be surprising. I mean, it was very, very normal. Like the man had a, like a keg bar, like in his, uh, like a kegger in his office. Mm-hmm. Like, what the heck? So, I mean, it was, it was a mess. But then I have a certain specific turning point in my research. And I pegged that as the 1980 release of Mm Pac-Man. And like throughout the 70s, you have a bunch of really important games come out. Um, I'm not going to go into every single specific one because that's not really important. I know that sounds terrible, but it's really not. But... Pac-Man is important. Again, it was released in 1980, and it kind of started a pivot. Let a me, very let me, small pivot. Let me ask you before you go into that. Like, my knowledge <laughs> of games of that time period isn't necessarily like the most in-depth, I guess I would mm-hmm. say. Is Pac-Man basically like the first or like one of the first like a big games to come over from Japan that like really hit it off big in the States? Uh, Space Invaders was first. Okay. I um, forgot. Yeah. Space- yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Space Invaders was 79. But um, it was one of the first. Right. Yes. Um, because it was basically Space Invaders then Pac-Man. So um, you have a the early beginnings i guess of a japanese takeover starting here but that's for a later point but yeah 1980 pac-man was released in both japan and the united states and um it was uh valley midway in the united states and it was namco in right namco in japan okay so um iwatani uh toru iwatani is the um developer of pac-man And I have a lot of research of how he has talked about Pac-Man over the years, but not from 1980, because I wanted to see his retrospective, like retrospective on what he was thinking when he made it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's fascinating because he does talk a lot about how he was more interested in getting like people who weren't typical gamers into arcades because they had the same kind of situation um which i haven't mentioned this arcades were really really shady at the time they were mostly male oriented they were mostly like in bars and that kind of thing um 
lots of smoke. You you just didn't really go in there. Male dominated spaces, essentially. Oh, totally, totally male dominated spaces. And um I mean there was even rhetoric of like it wasn't safe for a woman to go by herself. And um that same situation existed in Japan and so Iwatani's like, Yeah, no, this isn't cool. We should do something about this. And so what his current perspective and by current I mean I think it was like 2010 or something that they did these interviews is for one, he mentions that he made Pac-Man with women specifically in mind. He still has, which you know this as well as I do. Japan isn't great with gender relations either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he still has some like weird sexist stuff in there. Like, you know, women like eating. Um, but he says women were his main target and he wanted to improve the like view of arcades. He wanted to make it so that they were like a date destination so that men and women could go together. And I think one of the most fascinating things that he came out with in terms of like what he thought about Pac-Man was he actually argues that it was a very feminist game. Because he was saying that women wanted to be the ones who were, like, in control, essentially. And so he, you know, several years, how many years is it? I Oh, God, I don't even want to think about how many years it's been since Pac-Man was released. I guess it's near 40, right? 38, basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this was the 30-year retrospective when he was talking about this. But he found it important to say like to highlight his emphasis on women and um that was not normal at the time sorry Iwatani you weren't normal (laughs) and whether or not that was actually his goal is questionable like usually it wasn't it may have just been like a side effect of women really liked it and so he comes back at it and says you know oh yeah I made it for women I don't know it's hard to say, but it is significant that he feels it important to say that it was for women. I also get to bring up the fun uh, Scott Pilgrim fact in my dissertation, <laughs> which I had to do, um, especially since I had the I loved a f- shirt earlier. So the game was Japanese made, but it was licensed to the United States and it became like a massive deal in the U.S. and I know people have probably heard about like Pac-Man Fever. It's a terrible song. Probably Whoa. don't listen to it. Whoa. 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 How I mean, dare yeah. You. I just sent you like 70s disco about <laughs> Moscow earlier, so I really am not one to talk. But um it was huge and there were estimates that the amount of women who were gaming before Pac-Man was like below 10%. And by the time that Pac-Man came out, they were saying that they were seeing up to like 30% of arcade goers were women. And that it was primarily because of this Pac-Man phenomenon. And it really led to some interesting developments in the industry itself because more women were playing games and more women were making games. But keep in mind that we are still in a very, very sexist male-dominated industry because that did not change. But you, one thing that 
happened was that you ended up getting a new genre of games, which um, several companies call it this, but Atari was one of the, the most prominent. They called them cutesy games, which I'm glad we don't use that term anymore. <laughs> um, but cutesy games was basically their their way of saying games for women. And so it became a thing that there was a, a massive movement to try and license games that they felt like women would like and to create games that they felt like women would like. So it was like they just kind of realized, oh, hey, women exist. <laughs> Only took them like 10 years. Right. Like, hmm, women can also play video games rather than just be accessories? What? What? Hmm. So, um, you had you had a a small movement of trying to hire women for aesthetics. So, um, aesthetics in terms of creating games, not aesthetics for the company. <laughs> um, let me clarify. You hire for the aesthetics. <laughs> so you ended up getting uh, like some pretty heavy hitters. Um, you had uh, Donna Bailey at Atari. Um, Roberta Williams is kind of a different situation because she was married to the founder. So that's that's a little different. But like Janice Hendricks, people like this who were like really big in the industry in the early 80s. And you had um, David Nutting of Nutting Associates who was saying like women just have a different touch when it comes to video games. And like, again, sexist as heck. But what can you do? Um. And so they started making games that were more, they were less violent per se, and they had more colors in them. Because a lot of arcades at the time, or like games at the time were, you know, either competitive, action oriented. Mm -hmm. Sports. Sports or a combination of those essentially. Yeah, I mean, there was like, I, I broke it down into categories in my master's. And I'm trying to remember exactly what I did. It was basically like combat games, which would encompass like war stuff um, and sports games. Uh, space mm -hmm. was was a big category. So, I mean, it was like these really masculine categories. Right. And so at this point, they're like, hmm, we could do other stuff. That's a thing. So you ended up getting like really interesting games like Centipede that Donna Bailey worked on with Ed Logg. And Donna Bailey has been asked about this a lot. And she essentially says, like, I made this game to be a game that I would want to play. And the significant thing that makes Centipede stick out is the fact that it uses pastel colors. <laughs> and also that's just like that's counterculture to the ideas of the industry as a whole up until that point because mm -hmm. I know you mentioned it I think a lot and in, in your disc but like women at the time were one of the reasons they didn't want to play games is because those were games that were made for men yep yeah and and that was one of the big features features and quotations I guess um, of the industry is that they were men making games for other men mm-hmm and so while women, some women would go and play them, 
there was a stigma against it, and a lot of them just didn't like them. Like there was a there was this entire thing about like how Space Invaders was like a boy's toy. It it's fascinating, really, and so it was really new and interesting that Don is like, yeah, I wanted to make a game that I would play. And um, it's really, it upsets me that Microsoft and like later releases of Centipede deleted Donna completely. Like they just said Ed Log and a young designer. Which that's just. Gross. Yeah, completely uncalled for. Yeah, it's so upsetting. And part of that is because Donna did leave Atari. And, um. She said she had several reasons for leaving Atari, but mostly she was extremely uncomfortable with, like, the workplace environment. And um, she she did a Reddit AMA recently, and by recently I mean, like, a couple years ago. <laughs> and um, things are, are relative in my brain about <laughs> recently. Yeah, And uh, <laughs> I asked her, I'm like, you know, what was your experience like and how did it differ from like your male colleagues? She's like, yeah, just my mindset and my background were very, very different. And that led to a different kind of output. And that's like an interesting perspective because you didn't have that kind of output before this, really. You didn't have women that were saying, OK, I like this kind of thing. Let me make that. Mm -hmm. And um you know, Janice worked on Joust, which is a pretty famous game. And so, um, and they had art backgrounds. It's really, really cool. <laughs> Sorry, I get a little geeked out about Donna Bailey. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> and then, like I said, Roberta Williams is kind of like an outlier because Roberta's situation is that her husband who it's hilarious that I'm actually blanking on his name. Ken. Ken, thank you. Um, Ken had computers at home, and at one point he brought home a game and was like, hey, you should try this out, because she was uh, uh, basically a stay-at-home mom, and she kept saying about like how miserable she was in her life because he was out doing things and she was stuck at home. And so he, he brought her this game, and she got really interested in it, and so she decided, okay, well, I'll just make my own games because I'm out of this other game to play. So she started writing scripts and she would color pages and say, you know, put this page onto the screen and then we'll put this text on there. And so, um, I mean, she, she basically started kind of like the point and click, like adventure kind of games. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, that's a little strange to say because it wasn't really a point and click. It was like, here's an image and here's the text. Choose what you're going to do. But, that, but that's what they were known for. Yeah. And so, and Roberta had really different feelings on the industry than many of the other women. Mm -hmm. But again, she was working with her husband. And also, essentially, she's at a position of higher power than any other woman in the industry at that point. Mm-hmm. Because she was a co-owner yeah. of a company, so she's not going to so, see these types of like different like discriminations or sexism that these other women are going to be experiencing because they're just run-of-the-mill employees or programmers or developers or whatnot. Yeah, and I mean, 
Like, you're not going to be super grossly sexist to your boss. I mean, maybe you will be, but you probably shouldn't be. Well. Yeah. There is that advert they did. Yeah. And so <laughs> that was soft porn adventure. Yeah. Um, soft porn adventure decided that they were going to put a topless uh, Roberta into a hot tub for the ad. So that happened. Um, but that was also like partially Ken's idea. But even still. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's still problematic, but, yeah. um, her perspective was mainly just like, well, if women would just get interested in computers then like, maybe it would change. And I mean, that rhetoric hasn't changed. Mm-mm. Like that's still happening. People are like, oh, there's no women in the tech industry. Hmm, I wonder why. Maybe if they just got interested in it, there would be more women. It's like, oh, no, maybe, you know, turn down that rampant sexism a little bit and people might actually be interested because women go into that field and then drop out and leave a lot because of it. It's Hmm. a tad more complicated than just, oh, they should like this thing. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Um. But you do end up getting innovation from this. And it's still in that like creative freewheeling industry that that existed. And um, I, know, I know that you were yelling about several of the games in this chapter because like Mr. Do is Mr. in there. Mr. Do! And then um, the one with the pigs. Booyan? Booyan, there you go. Um, so... You had like a conscious effort by um, U.S. companies and Japanese companies to start like appealing to women with bright colors and different kinds of gameplay. And um, honestly, these are yeah. Imagine that telling a story. Um, and this this period of time is actually really really good for video games. But um, there was like this weirdly sexist effort to say like, Oh, Hey, we got to make games for women. And, um, you also had like really prominent feminists of the time, like Gloria Steinem, who are talking about this, which is fascinating. The fact that they're like, yeah, hey, you know what we should do? We should interview Gloria Steinem about video games. It's one of the things that like, I, I remember like when I was reading it, um, like last summer, like going mm-hmm. over certain parts of your of your disc, like seeing her pop up, and I was like, "That's strange. <laughs> that is not someone I would expect to be talking about video games in 1980." No, I mean like the fact that they even pulled on her and like, "What do you think about this?" is like massive. Um, and I mean she had some some negative things to say about it, of course, but um, and I mean justified. Yeah, and she was saying that a lot of it was that they were moving away from like the the violent types of games and that more women were getting involved but they were still she was still saying that like women are socialized to not be interested in this kind of thing they're not uh, i think the quote that i use is it's not feminine to win yeah i think that that sounds about right and um, I thought that that was a really interesting perspective from Gloria Steinem to to put in there was that just the fact that she exists in this entire like rhetoric of gaming <laughs> like what the heck um so i mean you have this like this pivot this shift that like you get more involvement with women and you have 
more of an interest in like women as gamers. And I mean, you do get pushback like, um, poor EC Mead, who was one of the, the reviewers for, I think it was, was it video gaming, computer gaming illustrated? It was one of the big, yeah, baby. I don't know. It was either that or joystick, but it was one of the big gaming magazines. And, E.C. Mead um, was one of two inter- uh, reviewers for the the magazine. The other one was a guy. If you and... if, if you want to understand how little things have changed <laughs> since the beginning of the industry up until now, this is point proven. It is. So I went through reading letters to the editor because I thought that that would be an interesting perspective. And it was a very depressing perspective (laughs) because a lot of the letters to the editor were people just like completely bashing EC Mead. And they were saying that like she didn't actually play the games that (laughs) she didn't actually play the games that she was reviewing, um, that she didn't have any kind of like respectability when it came to gaming that like she should be fired and um like there was this one joke that was saying um like maybe a woman's place is not reviewing cartridges and then it says like oops i shouldn't have said that isn't there one as well that's like oh if she's reviewing games she should know about every single game that's out there there was yes and there was one complaint in the entire run about the guy reviewer and it was just that he apparently said something negative about the system that that guy liked to play on. And he's like, I don't understand why he doesn't like the system. It doesn't make sense. So like compared to what happened with EC Mead, like that is extremely tame, but like that still happens Mm -hmm. and it's gross. And I like, I felt terrible for her reading those letters to the editor because you know, she probably had to read them. Yeah. But, um, I mean, it was just constant throughout the entire run of that magazine that people were just like bang on EC Mead. Um, again, things don't change apparently. Yeah. <sighs> um. So it is like this this weird sexist industry, but it's an industry that like you see like a little blip of hope here that like maybe things will change, and then 1982 happens. <laughs> And again, we've talked about the X-rated games on uh, a different podcast, so I'd recommend listening to that. It's a fun podcast. And like one of the only podcasts that we've done where we didn't actually have to edit out anything. <laughs> which, which, you, is, which is strange <laughs> considering that's like probably the most adult content of an episode that we have. Yeah. I mean, there was even a question beforehand. We're like, do we mark this as like mature? Like, what do we do? <laughs> um, but it's it's a it's a fun podcast. I actually have listened to it recently just for funsies. Um, and I go into it a, a bit in the dissertation. Like I said, it ends up being about like 10 pages where I talk about like Custer's Revenge and Beat 'em and Eat 'em, uh, Bachelor Party, Night on the Town, and X Man. And. Um, I'll still never get over the fact that HK Poon was the developer for for X-Men. I that can't be a real name. It's too good. Um, it's too good to be true. It is. So, um the gist of that is that 
when these games existed. And so there was like this massive influx of like X-rated games that weren't good. Um, the fact that we just watched a speed run of one of them completely, like every single bit of it completed in five minutes. <laughs> That's telling, telling, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the fact that a speed run exists is hilarious. It's fantastic. Um, so they exist. There was a massive, massive backlash. Um, whether it was uh, like feminist groups, family groups, um, with Custer's Revenge, it was specifically like Native American groups. Um, there was a lot of pushback on this. Even like the funniest thing to me is that Hustler reviewed some of them. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah. Hustler isn't known to be like a classy magazine, but even then, they're like, these games suck. <laughs> <laughs> so that is hilarious to me. Um, the hustle was like, yeah, nah, maybe, maybe don't, don't play these. Don't, don't waste your money on these. Yeah. Which granted, like you know, you mentioned uh, like all that pushback. Like, I mean, one of the biggest reasons that like these things didn't really take off, you know, other than the controversy is that like the pushback extended all the way to retailers, where they're like, no, we're not, we're not selling these. We're not selling these. You know, we talked about this in the in the in the podcast we did about it, but like a lot of these these games you had to go and like find a mail order form to even acquire them because mm-hmm. they were so just like very hard to find. Yeah. And I mean, even if a store did sell them, they were like under the counter type games. So you had yeah. to know about it before you went there to see like, you know, hmm, I saw this ad in Hustler for Custer's Revenge. I need to go pick that up. And <laughs> they like, said it was bad, but I really need to get it. Yeah. It, <laughs> um, and I do think it's worth noting, I, I may have mentioned it in the podcast, but I don't remember, that a lot of the companies that were making these were actual, like, porno companies mm-hmm. that then created, like, a side branch for creating video games, which tells you how big video games had gotten at that point that, like, porno companies were like, hey, let's make subsidiary companies that are primarily focused on video games there was one that's a good idea there was one quote from like one of these developers in their in your disc that i thought was really interesting it was like he mentioned that he actually like really liked the and enjoyed the idea of creating games Mm -hmm. but the pushback basically forced him to like just go back into into like creating uh, pornographic films and he was like i you know i I thought it might be a good idea to like make other types of games, but you know, like I have my forte in this and you know, with the pushback that all those games are getting, like it's not going to be easy to like make another one of those. Or if like, I'm trying to make something else, like, you know, they might associate me with those games as well. So like, it's not going to work out that way. So like, I'm kind of like, I can't do anything. And that was one of the guys who worked on X-Men. Um, so he's one of the last guys to make a porno game, essentially. Um, he worked with HK Poon. <laughs> well, not from Japan. Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> um, so, and one thing that I mentioned in, in the dissertation that I think is an important thing to note is that one of, it's the same guy who's saying that essentially, like, he felt like adults were tired of playing like space shoot 'em up type games mm-hmm. and like Iwatani 
created Pac-Man in the same kind of mindset that he was tired of space shoot 'em up games, so he made Pac-Man. But like they went two <laughs> very different routes and like what they created. Um, but I think that's fascinating that like both of these people are like, yeah, we're kind of tired of like what kind of content exists at the moment. So let's make something radically different. And it's an interesting to see even like just a commentary on the industry as a whole for that time period where like if you have these two developers that are just making like these observations, like that would be, you know, probably for a lot of other developers as well. They're like, hey, you know, space shooters have kind of been a big thing for like 10 years, but you know, people are going to get burned out on them. We got to we got to find something new to like keep captivating people, keep people's interest. That's not just the same old, same old year in and year out. It's really, really intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I guess what I'm leading up to here is that 1982 is also a, an important moment. And a lot of people know about this because it, it's like this become this massive thing and gaming that everybody knows about like the et burial everybody knows about that if they're somewhat involved in the gaming world at all they're like oh yeah i know about that but just just the lead up to all that is still fascinating like you know we talked about the the genesis of atari and all of that Mm -hmm. but from the warner acquisition all the way up until 82 and then 84 where warner's like see ya yeah it's a fascinating fascinating story that like just happens over the course of not even 10 years yeah it's 76 to 84 um and it's crazy because what what's essentially happening is that people are realizing like oh hey video games they they're profitable people seem to like them let's all make video games (laughs) and so you have people like um like Coleco and Mattel and um, other companies just making games in general. And whether they were good or not is, it's up to perspective. But um, but the, the, the market was flooded. It was really, really flooded. And like these X-rated games are also an example of that. It's just like everybody and their mom wanted to create video games mm-hmm. and wasn't necessarily a good thing. <laughs> And also, like, it wasn't necessarily a hard thing to do. It wasn't. Um, and, I mean, a lot of these people, you know, there was a mixed bag of, like, people who actually went to school to become, like, computer engineers and then people who just, like, taught themselves how to do it because, like, Roberta Williams initially was just doing, like, the art and the story, but eventually she taught herself how to actually program the games herself, too. So right. she was involved. So... I mean, people learned. It was just, I don't know, it was was weird. Um, There was like an influx of people just really, really interested in making a profit on video games. Right. And I think you're right. One of the the things that works really well in in the dissertation, if I say so myself, um, (laughs) is that I was able to find the Warner Financial, like, shareholder reports. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I went through annually and was looking at like what kind of rhetoric they were using each year about Atari and video games in general. And I mean, you have like a really great story of the industry right there in the in the reports because you have just like the early years where they're like, yeah, we we got them and we're working on 
you know, making a profit and then like the VCS is released and things start getting more positive and then like asteroids is released and like, whoa, this is great. And um, 1980 is essentially their peak. They're just, and they're just like, they're just raking in money hand over fist, like Atari balloons to like extraordinary amounts of employees. Yeah, they go from essentially like in 76, they had, I think, 890 something. And by 82, they had 10,000. And, and yeah, like like you said, like those Warner reports are just like, you know, by the time they get to 1980, they're just like, yo, Atari is basically our, our cash cow. Like, yeah. this is the reason we are making so much money. And they're blatant about it. They're yeah. like, yeah, Atari is the reason. Like, Atari always... Like, starting in 1980, they get to the forefront of every single one of these financial reports. Mm-hmm. So, like, Atari is great. Atari's doing this. Atari's doing this. Atari did this. Atari's going into this. They're the and... future of the of of everything, basically. Like, we're going to, hey, there's this crazy technology. We're going to give it to Atari because they'll, they'll do something with it. Look at all the, look at the past, look at the success they've had. They can do anything. It's crazy. And, I mean, this continues for a while. Mm-hmm. Um until I think it's the 83 report because 82 wouldn't reflect the the issues that happened in 82. But I think 82 is the one where like you start to see the hint you of start something's hint going of wrong. Yeah. Um, because you start getting issues of like the finances aren't really working out as much and they're having a few issues and they're trying to go into like home computing instead of like arcades and mm-hmm. like home consoles because like eh, things aren't really great there. <laughs> Because I'm gonna say like that 82 or the 81 one is the one where like they they make less money than they had like the previous year and like and the reports are just essentially like hey that's not necessarily good but you know that business can happen like that you know it's it may not be a bad thing don't this is not hit the panic button quite yet but <laughs> you know it, there's a possibility this could be concerning maybe hover your hand over the yeah. panic button a little bit. <laughs> And then, so, um, and then 83 is the one where, like, is that the one where they basically come out and, like, Warner's like, this is the first time we've taken a loss in the history of our company? Or is that 84? Yeah. I think it's 83. Then that's when you're like, oh, boy. Yeah. Um, And you can just feel the panic coming from the financial reports. Like, you can feel it just by what they're saying. Because essentially, you know... They're like, hey, we we lost a lot of money. This this they literally say this is the first time we lost money in the entire run of our of our company, and mm-hmm. they just throw Atari under the bus. Oh yeah, they're like, this is all Atari's fault. <laughs> yep. Um, and I mean that's disingenuous because if you look through the rest of it, you see that there are issues other places, but it is mainly Atari. It's it's the biggest, you know, um, the biggest like loss of money that you can basically pinpoint and like, Hey, they like look like, Oh yeah, this is the reason why there was a, a loss this, this, uh, this financial year. Yeah. I mean, bubbles eventually pop. Yeah, exactly. And this was their pop. (laughs) And then by 84, they're like, yeah, no, we're getting rid of Atari. We can't have them anymore. Mm -hmm. This is, this is terrible. So they, they sell off Atari and, um, Atari floats around for a little bit after that, but they never really recover. It's, it's brutal, and I mean, I I know that I mentioned the ET burial, but um, I kind of explain it in the dissertation that this was like a literal burial of the industry. 
And also, I guess something that we should mention is that, like, you know, when you think of the burial, everyone associates with the ET. Mm-hmm. And they, it wasn't just ET. Yeah, exactly. Like everyone tries to pinpoint that as the exact cause of like why the crash happens, but there was like you mentioned in your disc, like there's there's the uh, the uh, the twenty six hundred version of Pac Man, which was very poorly received. Mm-hmm. And they 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 basically ordered like what seven million copies and sold five million, and then a lot of those got returned regardless. Yep. And then like like we said, like the the influx of a lot of games that came in to the market, a lot of like bad games, a lot of copycat games, the porno games, and then the ET deal, which I you can probably better explain, but that essentially becomes the straw that can- breaks the camel's back. Yeah, and I mean like again, Howard Scott Warshaw is generally known at that point to be a really good game developer and he is a mm-hmm. good game developer yeah. um it is not his fault this, it's not his fault he had five weeks to get that game done and that's that's insane even by that's those those days standards that is insane and i mean like if you play the game with that in mind you're like oh this actually you know given what time he had he did a good job he made something um, playable in five weeks yeah i mean that's more than I could have done. Um, but, and I mean, a lot of people pin that on him, and that is not fair. Like, that is not his fault, and he did the best that he could. Um, but, you know, there's always got to be, a, like, a, a fall man. Yeah, yeah a scapegoat. Um, and he was he was that, and E.T. was that. And that that's not fair, and... That's one thing that I really wanted to point out with this chapter was that, like, the the standard narrative of, like, why the industry crash happened is not completely true. Yeah. And it is just a lot of, a lot of terrible games coming out, um, a lot of companies that are getting in that really have no right to be there, um, the, the porno games, which led to a really negative view of the industry... Uh, I mean, it was a lot of stuff that just kind of like, again, it was a bubble and it popped. And um, the reason that I focus so much on Atari in this chapter is that once Atari essentially went down, everybody went down. Mm -hmm. Because you can't have, you can't have like the... the, Industry leader. You can't have the industry leader collapse and not have it take everyone with them. And one of the things that I did not know going into this that I found out... um, um, like one of my weird research moments was that um, like two of the major Atari executives even got charges put up against them because they sold their shares for insider trading. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, Oh man, I didn't know that. Like that's everything went to hell. <laughs> I mean, like it's not Atari necessarily didn't like just die, die because no, they didn't die because you know, they still came out with like the 5,200, the 7,800 after this, after the fact, but you know they were they were completely a shell of their former selves. Like they were not even like close to like who they used to be. No, and um, like there was the uh, internal memos and like newspapers and things like that were always saying like, how do we get back to those days? What do we do to get there? Mm-hmm. And one of the big shifts at this point that, and I mean not like at this point after the crash, but like leading up to the crash is that you do lose that sense of, like, the, the countercultural business. Yeah. Um, 
because you end up getting more of like the Ray Kasser type executives coming in and like they have the business suits and they, you know, have currently worked in like, uh, what was the freaking company? Now I'm blanking on it. <laughs> Burlington. Um, like they had experience in businesses, but they didn't have the experience in this kind of industry and they didn't understand what they were making. And so it was kind of an issue of like, okay, well, just make these games and we'll sell them and make a high profit. And then like the guys who are having to make it are like, um, we can't do that. Like we need time. And that's the whole issue. Like ET is representative of that clash there in the sense that you had Warshaw who was representative of like this old model of, you know, just creativity and making things on their own time. And then you have, Atari, the new Atari executives are saying, no, you have five weeks, get it done. We have to make a profit. And so you have a complete change in how the industry in and of itself looked and how it operated. And it was detrimental to the actual quality of what was produced. Mm -hmm. Let me, let me ask you something. Cause this, ask. this just thought, this thought popped into my head. Mm -hmm. Cause you mentioned how, you know, the E.T. situation was a lot of, like, Atari being like, we need to make, we need a profit. Mm -hmm. If the Pac-Man debacle doesn't happen, does E.T. basically... The deal still happens, but does Warshaw get more time to make that game? No. Even if, even if they make a lot more money with Pac-Man than they did. And, like, it doesn't get returned and all that stuff. Like, it's a, it's a huge success. I think it still would have happened the way it did because, um, and I mean, that is hard to answer, but I really do think that it still would have happened because they were specifically trying to capitalize on the popularity of E.T. at that right. point and to make E.T. release before Christmas. So it could be like a holiday gift. And I feel like even if you, if at that point, like it could just come down to, Instead of them wanting to, like, we need to make money, like, Atari mm -hmm. could just be like, oh, yeah, we could do this in five weeks. Of course we can. Yeah. We're Atari. You know who we are? And I, I think that's a lot of it, is that they had just, like, a bunch of hubris. Like, you've had um, Ray Kasser saying all the time, like, we had the best year ever, and I'll never get tired of saying that. And, and like, then, well, <laughs> you got tired of saying it, buddy. Was it, the, uh, was it him, or was it the person who came in after him that was like... You know, they had all these years and years of success, but, like, they never had a year of, like, of anything bad happening to them, so they did not know how to handle it. It was the guy who came in in 83. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was like, they didn't understand how to fail. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people and a lot of companies don't know how to fail. So, I mean, it's, it's... I don't know. I think it's an intriguing idea, but um, I think E.T. still would have happened the way that it went down. Yeah. And um, there was even some like talk on, again, this is like a controversial thing, so I didn't put it in the dissertation. But there was a question on whether or not Steven Spielberg actually liked the game. Um, because Warshaw says that Spielberg played it and he enjoyed it. And so, like, he thought that it was okay. And then Spielberg has come out since then. It's like, no, it was terrible. I hated it. Like, I don't know why they did that. 
And again, that may be just him saying, you know, well, it sucked because like everybody said it sucked. So I have to say that it sucked. I feel like there was footage in that documentary of him like saying something positive about it. Or maybe it was just like him in relation to the deal. Yeah. um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but Spielberg didn't have a whole lot negative to say about it until everybody else had something negative to say about it. Um, So whether or not. Again, it's it's a contentious point with these people. So I didn't put it in there, um, but I think it is important to say at least yeah, that there was potential that Spielberg was like, yeah, this is fine until it wasn't. <laughs> but I mean, at this point, by 84, basically it's dead. Like you still have some somewhat big releases like you have a dragon's lair and you have cubert but like those are atari games those are Mm -mm. those are arcade games so yeah and like home consoles aren't really a thing anymore um which that was the thing that bothered me about season two of stranger things is that um they take away mike's vcs and he's like oh you can't take away my atari i'm like dude it's 84 you don't care anymore don't even (laughs) lie um so, I mean, it, it's it's on life support, basically. And this, like, is, and this is around the time, like, news outlets are being like, yeah, the video game industry's dead. It's gone. Yeah, I mean, it's they done. said it was dead. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that really saved it was Nintendo. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's kind of crazy to say, like, one company saved it, but one company also founded it. So, um. But Nintendo really did. They found a way to fix the issues. And that's one thing that I think is really important about this is that Nintendo was paying very close attention to what happened with Atari. And like, so basically everything that happened with that, don't do that. Because if they didn't, like, it would just, it would essentially probably be the same. The the NES in America, if they had gone the same route that Atari had, it would have been a failure. Mm -hmm. Because... America at that time just they weren't into video games anymore like that mm-hmm. that the whole thing was dead and um, it is worth noting that in the early 80s around like 82 Nintendo had uh, originally like set up to work with Atari mm-hmm. but then once everything went down Nintendo pulled out um, so there was some kind of like collaboration there which you know later on they do that with sony as well but but i mean like like um, there's there's nintendo games on the 2600 like there's donkey kong on the 2600 yeah um but they they basically took those lessons to heart and they're like don't do any of that so um one of the big things that they did is they marketed it as a toy in the united states Mm -hmm. as opposed to like a consumer electronic and so, um, like, Rob was a big thing on that. And the uh, the zapper. The zapper, yep. Um, because they're like, hey, look, this has a zapper and a toy robot, so it couldn't possibly be for, uh, you know, adult video games. Yeah, this, this is, is a toy. Video games. This, this is, is for toy. kids. The entire family can enjoy this thing. Which is which is funny because you know Nintendo always gets about people being like, oh, they're just market to kids, and it's like. Yo, if they didn't market to kids in 85... You wouldn't have the this The industry... Th- there would be no industry. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it was a successful model for them and it, people give them, but really it's still a successful model for them. Yeah. Um, and also like we got the greatness that was the robot and like the most recent smash had him and that was hilarious, but they marketed it as a toy um, they did a soft release for it in New York in 85, like mm-hmm. the Christmas holiday season of 85. And like, I think it was a nine week period that they, they had a release and they sold like 90,000, which is insane because yeah. like the Magnavox and the entire run of it sold only 20,000. And just even 200,000. And just considering everything that had happened in the previous years, like the fact that you're able to come out with a soft release and Mm. put up those numbers is shocking. It's crazy. And, um, I mean, it also wasn't really a cheap system at the time. Like it was relatively expensive. Cause I think it was like what? 150, 150 to 200. I think so. Yeah. Cause it was, I think the NES was the more expensive and like the master system was like 150. But then Something again, like it came with like the zapper and the, yeah, the robot. Yeah, yeah. So, um, which ROB, it's robotic operating buddy. Rob. And isn't that what it stands for though? That sounds right. <laughs> okay. I think so. But, um, so that was one major thing they did was market it as a toy. Um, they also locked down the cartridges. So mm-hmm. you're not going to have any of these X-rated games come out again because they're like, okay, we're going to license everything. <laughs> we're going to produce our own stuff. So they were the ones who were producing the cartridges. And I mean, it worked. They had that like Nintendo seal that reassured people that like, okay, yeah, you're going to buy something that's good, which <laughs> questionable, but it But worked. at the time, yeah. And even just like the idea of locking down third parties to be like, okay, you guys can only release... Three games a year. Three games a year, which, I mean, obviously, companies got around that. Right. Uh, but, but, but even still, like, that... yeah, like, the idea of them even doing that to to basically shrink the market space so you're not seeing this in, influx of just trash here and there, like, what happened just a few years prior is it's mm-hmm. a smart idea. And they also... Um, took a lesson from Pac-Man in the sense that they started releasing games that had, like, a very prominent figure in it that like had a story and could be sold as like other stuff besides just a video game. Mm-hmm. I mean like Mario is still like synonymous with gaming essentially. And even like um, even that like it's important to note that like when they when they did that soft launch in 85 like mm-hmm. Mario Brothers was not out yet or Super Mario mm-hmm. Brothers was not out yet. Nope. Cuz that doesn't come till 86. Right. It was out in Japan, but it was not out in the United mm-hmm. States. Um, so, yeah, it was it was not out, and then um, eventually you had Zelda come along. But um, I mean, if you, if you think about it, like the way they had to market the NES at the time, like it makes a lot of sense why things like the Famicom Disk System did not come out over here. Mm-hmm. Because if that had come out over here, it probably had given more of a look like, oh, video games, huh? Yeah. And, you know, if they're trying to steer clear of that image, like, that that's, that's the type of thing you're not going to bring over to the States. And one thing that I learned that I didn't know is that um, 
like Sears refused to carry it. Yeah. In their stores. I did not know that. But once they actually had the full release, Sears said no. That you could order it off the catalog, but they would not sell it in the stores. And I mean, that that just shows like the level of distrust that like businesses and people had against video games in the United States is that like Sears was one of the biggest companies at that time and they wouldn't carry it. Mm hmm. That's crazy. It, it's it really is. So, I mean, it, it was it was kind of an uphill battle and you had um, journalists that are like, who is this startup company? Which it wasn't a startup company. I don't know why they thought <laughs> no. that. But they're like, who is this startup company? It's like, oh, we're going to bring video games back. And they're like, this is dumb. You're dumb, Nintendo. Um, <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> You're just like, they thought they could bring video games back. They're dead. <laughs> Nintendo, please. <laughs> And so, like, I make this reference in the dissertation about, like, how essentially you have the E.T. burial is, like, the burial of the industry. And then you have, like, a Lazarus resurrection moment with the NES. And, I mean, you're not far off. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating because Nintendo legitimately single-handedly saved it. And eventually you end up getting, like, the, the Master System release and, um... I think the most interesting thing about this is that the Atari systems actually get like a resurgence after because they're like, oh, well, we can't afford the Nintendo. We can't afford yeah. the Sega, but we can oh. afford the, the, the Atari systems. Because it was like, what, 50 bucks for a 5200 or a 7800 at the time? Yeah, it was 50 bucks. So <laughs> the one smart thing Atari did post crash. Yeah, a postcard. So like, oh, we can make this fifty, and then like people who can't afford it. Uh, so they get like a little blip of of movement on product, which is kind of crazy. But again, it was the Nintendo factor. And I guess I don't. I don't know. I I feel like most people know this, but like there may be some people out there that don't. But like, you know, people like to think Atari just dies at, after the crash, after the burial, and everything. But like they they go on at least in terms of manufacturing hardware. It's mm-hmm. not until the early '90s until like they're basically out of they they finally decide to go out of the market like after the release of the Jaguar. Yeah. Um. So they continued to make stuff. Um. They were just bought out by somebody else who mm-hmm. essentially had like the Atari IP. Which is the story of Atari from then on, then till today. <laughs> yeah, they're still in the same situation. So it, it's. Atari didn't go away. Atari died, but they didn't go away. They were just they were never the juggernaut that they were they were in the early eighties, late seventies. They will they would never even came close to like reaching that zeitgeist again. No, no. And I mean like there was some excitement was it early this year or late last year that like they were coming out with some new console. I'm like, oh my god, Atari, like really? Yeah. <laughs> um so we'll we'll see about that. But and, and like you like you mentioned in your disc, it's like once eighty five happens, it's it's Japanese dominance until essentially the Xbox. Yeah, because that's that. Because I mean, that is the the next time like an American company goes into hardware, right? Well, it's the least, first time that like a it's successful, a successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but. Until that point, it was Japan all the way, pretty mm-hmm. much. And I mean, then even then, like Microsoft still has like an uphill battle in certain situations right, yeah. with 
what they're doing. So it, it, it's a strange situation that it becomes like a very internationalized business, but specifically with consoles, it was Japan. Yeah. Um, so up until this point, it was a very U.S. based industry. Like, yes, you had games in Japan, but that was kind of a separate situation. But like the juggernaut of video gaming was the United States. And in the course of like two years, it flip flops just drastically. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it like you said, until Microsoft, it was pretty much the same situation. Japan dominated. And I mean, even for like a lot of my friends' parents, like if you were talking about video games specifically, they would just say like, oh, Nintendo. Yeah. Or you're going to go play the Nintendo. Yeah, yeah, and like that continued throughout like my my early childhood. It's yeah. kind of like how um like us southerners, which not you, but us <laughs> southerners call every kind of soda a coke. Like, yeah. give me a coke. Oh, is Dr Pepper okay? Yeah, it's fine. Um, like th- that's how it was. It's like all my my friends, like their parents, are like yeah, go play the Nintendo, and like, well, it's actually a Sega, but that's fine. <laughs> um. And that's like a real thing that happened. They just became like synonyms, essentially. It became the brand. Yeah, it did. I mean, it really, really did. And I think it would be hard to find somebody who doesn't really recognize Mario at this point. Right, yeah. But I think if you were to go back and show some of these old Atari games, they'd have a harder time. Uh, Especially because some of them looked a lot alike. Yeah. (laughs) Um. So, I mean, that that's essentially, like, my conclusion of my dissertation is that you have, um, like, this meteoric rise and this industry that is so countercultural, freewheeling, but very, very creative and sexist. <laughs> um, at, by 1980, you get, like, a little bit of, like, a blip of hope that this industry might have a little bit of change. You have women becoming more involved. You have more of an interest in creating, like, interesting games, uh, different games. But then by the time the crash comes along, you have a different business model. You have a different business culture. And then you have, like, a complete and utter influx of terrible games. And that leads to the crash. It leaves essentially, like, a vacuum that can be filled and nintendo's like hi hello we're here and i mean that's that's essentially like the the early video game industry in a Mm -hmm. nutshell yeah and i I did write an epilogue and that was something i had initially told myself i wouldn't do um i really didn't want to write it when i was first writing the dissertation (laughs) But I feel like it was important now that I've actually written it and it's in there. Uh, Because you do have some very interesting parallels. And I didn't mention it in the epilogue, but one thing that you've mentioned is like the entire thing with EC Mead. That still happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, You still have like the whole idea of like gamer girls and quotations and like that's essentially what they were accusing EC Meat of. It's like, you don't really play video games. What are you doing? Um, but I do talk about um, Gamergate <laughs> and how that situation was like rampantly sexist. Um, I don't want to talk about that a whole lot on the podcast. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do talk about like how 
an extremely misogynistic and extremely masculine culture kind of evolves in the industry. And um, I took some reports on what the industry development cycle is like now and how it's essentially like, I'm trying to think of the best way to word this, that it's, it's an extreme situation where they are like dog eat dog kind of thing. There's a lot of like prioritizing of like crunch and like, oh, if you're not, you're not, you're not crunching, you're not doing that sort of thing. Like, what are you doing here? You're just, you're, yeah. you're, you're low life. And it, and it even becomes a question of like, if you can't do it, they question like your masculinity, which is yeah. so bizarre, yeah. but it, it's a real thing that I, I talk about in there. And, um, I do talk about like how this entire rhetoric of like the gamer came out. And that connects very closely to, to Gamergate in and of itself. But again, I really don't want to go into that too much um, for reasons. And um, one of the, I guess, minor things that I talk about is that throughout the dissertation, I keep mentioning that like this whole idea of like gambling and childhood corruption is always associated with like pinball and video games. And then like that has come up again very, very recently uh, with the loot boxes and loot crates and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I, I, I literally just saw this yesterday, but uh, I think there was some European company or not company country that just recently ruled that like, yeah, loot boxes are, are we're considering those gambling. Oh man. I knew there was one that happened around like December, but like this is this is a thing that's happening. Like the Apple Store is like cracking down on that kind of stuff and I think that's something in like there's some Asian company or Asian countries that also have that thing where they require odds on loot boxes. Which there's I think Korea is one of them. Where, which like I South think Korea? like Yeah, I think that's one of them. But but like I think Overwatch was something that like, you know, would have been affected by that, but they they decided they did something that they would tried to get around that essentially hmm. so there's like even though like there are companies and laws that are trying to crack down on this and requiring things like that like these are there's companies are still trying to find ways to get around that yeah and i mean um the big example that i used was battlefront um mm-hmm. the most recent battlefront release and i looked into that because i wrote that chapter in december and things have changed since december right. and their workaround was that you can no longer pay real money to get them so until just recently we're like hey we're gonna put microtransactions back in yeah it it was it was a thing yeah (laughs) so it's um there are a lot of parallels still in the early industry to what's going on today and i mean you do still have like a very hyper masculine and sexist industry which is unfortunate you do have some movement of women becoming involved but even then like if you get a game that is at all considered like feminist or like feminized, like I, I remember there was a lot of pushback against um, Gone Home mm-hmm. because of like how much of a woman's perspective is in there. Like there was a lot of pushback against that. And I think um, that um, the what's the name of that game? Edith, Edith, Edith. Something, something, either Finch. Yes. Um, that had pushback as well. Um, so you have 
a really strange situation where anything that can be somewhat considered feminine is like, oh, I don't know about that. Um, and I do write in my dissertation that in another life, I worked at a video game retailer, which if people listen to this, they probably have realized that. Um, and I talk about how there was like this really weird movement and like, it's still going on now, but it started in like the early 2000s. To... I feel like it. It started around the Wii. I feel like it started earlier than that. Like I feel like there were PS1 games that were that were similar in this way. Some of them, yeah. Um, because I mean, you did have like Disney games and all that came out on like I had them on the Genesis. Right. Yeah, but like, but they but were these actually spe- these types specifically. Good. Yeah. Um. There were some like Barbie games, and yeah. I remember that like the Game Boy Advance had some, but there was like a massive amount of these released or like after the Wii. Right. Like, yeah. N- we were getting them every single week that I was like, Jesus Christ, no one's going to buy this game. And then they did. Shovelware. Yeah. It, it became like this thing, which like the only good one that I could really think of was Cooking Mama, but. Whenever somebody would come in the store and like, oh, I want to buy a game for for my girl, and I would like recommend some other kinds of games, They're like, but what about this Imagine Babies? <laughs> and um, I mean, for one, it's just insanely sexist to be like, you know what, girls like taking care of kids. <laughs> but um, I mean, it was kind of like that half-hearted attempt of like appealing to girls and women, but not having actual women on like the teams and development. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And again, very much the same. (laughs) So I guess that's really it. I can't really think of a whole lot more that do you, do you have anything that I'm leaving out? Nolan Bushnell sucks. Oh, that's a thing. (laughs) I do mention the, the not Nolan movement. Yeah. 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 Um, because when I was writing that, that, that came out and I was like, oh, that's got to go in here. Um, because if you haven't picked up by now, I really hate Nolan Bushnell. Um, don't tell him that, but the, the movement against him getting the pioneer award from the game developers conference, I believe. Um, because they're like yeah nolan was kind of a terrible person like he was really really sexist and he treated people awful and like with the me too movement coming out at the same time it was it was a an issue and it was honestly a pr nightmare for them that if they had gone through with it and given him that award it would not have gone well no it would not have so essentially what they said is Okay, so no one's going to really get the award, but we're going to dedicate it to all those who have been behind the scenes. And I'm like, wow, that's a really terrible way to put this, but (laughs) sure. Um, But I did put not Nolan in there because I felt like that was important that even still like his behavior from the 70s is coming back to bite him in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, But at least like it's the start of some kinds of conversations of like, Hey, maybe this kind of stuff is not okay. So it's a little bit of growth, especially considering like how terrible Gamergate was about that kind of rhetoric. And I think it's also like important to know that like in terms of just like industries as a whole, like it's still a very young one. Oh yeah. It's super young. So still get mad at me about this. Like that's not history. So so, like, 
I don't necessarily expect like a huge amount of growth between you know that time period and now. Like I wish there was. Yeah. But in terms of just like how industries work and everything like that in general, it's like the fact that you know we are how we are today is is a is positive, but it's still you know a thing of like oh there's still a lot of ways to go and this industry still has a lot of time left to to hopefully get to that point. Well, and even then, like the industry got worse before it got better. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it it's still kind of in a really terrible situation, but I mean, it's it's strange for me because you know this, and most people who know me in some capacity know this. Like, I'm really, really passionate about video games. It's something that I really like and care a lot about, and it's kind of exhausting to keep up with the industry as a whole mm-hmm. because it, it it is really depressing at times. But I mean, I feel like this dissertation came out of that love. Yeah. Like, even if it is critical, it, it was me saying like this is something that I actually care about and I want to talk about. And I did not set out at the beginning to write like a partial business history, but that's what it ended up being. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, it it really did become like this, like story of business and story of gender and story of counterculture. And I mean, it's, it's not what I set out to do at all, but I'm really happy with the product of it. It's a fascinating tale. Yay! I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> you were my guinea pig. It's true. Um, which you did get uh, a fun acknowledgement in my in my dissertation. <laughs> so um, that happened. Thank you. I appreciate you. Hey, no problem. <laughs> uh, I really can't think of anything else that we might need to talk about in it. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe uh, if anybody's listening and eventually it becomes a book, look out for it. Buy it. <laughs> Maybe. Buy five copies. Don't buy five <laughs> copies, but like you can say like, hey, I knew about this before it was a book. <laughs> this is a good <laughs> topic for a book. <laughs> you can be like the hipster of, of my dissertation <laughs> topic. So I think that's going to wrap it up then. I think so. Yeah. Um, hopefully by the time this goes up, we'll have positive news where we're hoping and maybe I'll just be asleep for like two weeks. <laughs> that is, that's the dream. I God, I hope so. Uh, my students will be like, where is our professor? And I'm just snoozing. <laughs> she's, she's been asleep for like a week or so. It's fine. Don't worry. Um, so hopefully by the time this comes out, we have positive results, but, uh, we'll see. That's what I'm hoping for. Me too. Me too. Trust me. <laughs> Well, like we said earlier, if you like this episode, you should probably go back and check the episode we did about the the pornographic games of the Atari 2600, which similar similar themes and similar time period. So the that can that episode can definitely complement this one in a wide variety of ways. Yeah, and I mean, since we didn't really go into depth on them in this episode, because we went into depth on that episode, mm-hmm. which. I should have thought about my phrasing before I said that. Um, Yeah. Uh, If you're interested in that topic, which why wouldn't you be? uh, Go listen to that because it's a fun episode. Definitely, definitely. It made me question like my entire existence for a while. (laughs) Well, 
I guess if you want to find out more from us, you should uh, go to seasonalanimecheckup.com or sac.cool. Those are ways you can get to us. And you can find like all of our past episodes there. Like the porn episode we talked about. And all sorts of other fun, fun, fun stuff. <laughs> all the fun stuff. Uh, you can also find columns and reviews on the site as well. Uh, I have a new piece going up on Crunchyroll this week. It's yeah. already up by this time. Uh, it's about Steins Gate Zero and uh, the character of Okabe, the main character, if you don't know. And the distinct changes he's gone through from Steins Gate to Steins Gate Zero, which are very fascinating. And how the the game does it as well, but I think the anime does a little bit better job of handling how it shows his mental health and like just the way he's trying to, to cope with things, to handle things, all that sorts of stuff. So that should be up on Crunchyroll uh, sometime, or thir- I think Thursday. 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 So go check that out. Yeah. Uh, you can, what else? Oh, Anladium. Hey, that's you. Hi. Go, go check out her site, Anladium.com. It's a cool place to go. She's got cool places, like cool places, cool things like columns and reviews <laughs> on her site. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash anime checkup. It's where we do to the Twitters. Uh, you can f- support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash SACOVA. If you're like, wow, this was a cool episode, I want to give you a dollar, that's the place to do it. <laughs> uh, next week is still in the air because we are currently, and just for both of us, I mean, you you more specifically, but also me, we were both in just very Hell stressful, mode. Very stressful <laughs> weeks, yeah. So we'll come up with something next week uh tba yep so yeah uh hopefully it's cool it should be if it's us yay uh but yeah look forward to that next week and uh hopefully you learned something this week hopefully